Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. This was the first episode that I had watched, and I knew that I was going to be in for a treat now. Yeah, when I heard about um, the Vedas containing ancient UFO technology, uh, I knew that this was going to be fun. And I will say, this episode, probably more so than all of the three episodes I've researched so far, Yeah, uh, I wound up in a much further place uh, from where I started than I anticipated, you know. This one was just like, oh, it's probably just a misinterpretation of some like, you know, Vedic script that's, you know, several thousand uh-huh. years old. That's fine. I ended up with like talks about Indian nationalism and fake news and Islamophobia and just mm-hmm. all sorts of places I did not expect researching about Indian flying machines to go. Well, so the thing that that caught me that, that got my attention is they talked a little bit about the flying carpet, right? I think maybe that's a future episode that I, I watched like one and a half episodes after this. I know they come back to this a few times throughout the show, including uh, later on. I know they, in the first episode, they do a thing where they uh, go to an actual aerodynamics research like lab to test out whether or not Egyptian wooden airplanes could fly. And then when they couldn't, they just started adding pieces onto it until it worked. Um, I I loved that. It was like, boy, (laughs) this doesn't work, but like, what if we made it work? Then I bet it would work. Right. Yeah. And I was just thinking about like the people who like test prototype airplanes all day, just being like, wait, what? What's yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> it's history channel. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Can I also say this is, so this is like the first, the the very first official episode past the pilot, right? Past the little special. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they, this does come up in the special, uh, but, so, but this is the first one where they go into more detail yes. in the actual episode than they do in like the pilot. So, cause I, I found it fascinating cause episode like one, this episode is called the evidence or like it has like this big open sign that's like the evidence i'm like if all the evidence is in this episode then like what are the rest of the episodes about of this series i know there is an episode at some point where they make a little vimana out of tin or something to test it because it's like you know it's history channel so they want to do something like mythbusters or whatever except it's like oh I but see. all the myths are true um <laughs> Confirmed. So welcome to It's Probably Not Aliens. Yeah, welcome to the show. This is where we look at things from pseudo-archaeology and pseudo-history. Specifically, we're going through uh, the History Channel epic Ancient Aliens and looking at different claims that they've made, which is basically the creme de la creme of the ancient astronaut theory group of people on the internet. Yes. And we're a couple episodes in. I'm learning a lot. My name is Scott Nicewander. I know nothing about this, this stuff. I am, I am one half of this podcast and I am the half that knows nothing. And I'm Tristan Johnson. I'm the half that decides to pull on strings until I've unraveled the whole sweater. And my life is made 10 minutes shorter as a result. (laughs) (laughs) But you better everyone else's lives because of it, because we get to learn about some fun history. We get to make content. Yeah, we do. 
eventually most precious we'll, of commodities in this universe. That's right. That's right. We make content which is more valuable than anything, including the listener's time. Thank you, listener. This most precious thing that you're sacrificing to listen to us. Like maybe while you're listening to this episode, if you've got free hands, you can pull out a little book and do that thing where you put a box in for every week of your life that you have for an average lifespan and just know that uh, one hour or so of yeah. that those boxes you spent listening to this. That sounds terrifying. Um, I didn't know that's a thing. <laughs> I don't like it. No, thank you. I don't want to check down until until my inevitable demise. <sighs> Unless we discover in a future episode of this podcast that aliens have invented technology that allows us to live forever. Is that around the corner? I don't know. But we're going to talk about flying machines today. Yeah. So here's the claim that came through in this most esteemed of television series. Mm -hmm. In the Sanskrit Vedas, which is a very, very, very important religious text in India, they're written in Sanskrit, a very ancient language. And essentially, this is some of the oldest holy scripture for Hindus. Uh, there are references to things called the manas. And according to ancient aliens, they're flying machines or chariots, and that there's references to entire battles in the sky. <sighs> then in the Vedas, ancient texts called the Vedas, we have blueprints, technical blueprints describing mercury-powered dynamos and flywheels that uh, describe, you know, possibly working. Anti-gravity was a word that was used Ooh. to make uh, these flying machines. So... Is it possible that aliens did it or that the ancient Indians were able to build airplanes? This is uh, tied into the Nazca lines and some stuff about Egypt that we'll probably yeah. talk about sort of the stuff that air travel existed in the far past and we just don't realize it yet for reasons. That's I, I love that idea though. It, it seems to, it seems to be just keep, it keeps cropping up that these ancient civilizations have had developed the ability to fly all over the place. It seems like the evidence is a little, it's not, maybe it's not all there. Maybe it's not a hundred percent there, but I like the idea are you going to ruin it for me? Are you going to ruin this idea for me? I'm going to ruin a lot of things. Okay. Uh, but if you want to go with the first thing to make that sort of greater positive theory that there was just regular air travel in the days before, mm -hmm. you know, the invention of the internal combustion engine. Sure. The problem there is that, you know, air infrastructure is, uh, it, when it exists, it takes up space. It's true. And so... If it was around, there would be a lot of evidence. I don't know if you've noticed, but airports are pretty big and airplanes are also kind of big. And so it'd be kind of tough to have this entire part of the ancient world exist, especially in very heavily researched areas like ancient Egypt and ancient India. Yeah. And then have no physical evidence that's left behind except for like one or two pieces of text. That's true. We've not really seen a lot of ancient ruins of uh, those moving sidewalks that people get on at airports. So that's a pretty mm -hmm. big tell for me that we don't have any evidence of that. Yeah. Not to recycle a joke, but no evidence of the Cinnabons or Correct. anything. Yep. So pretty big hole in this theory already, it seems. But first let's go back to an ancient language known as Sanskrit actually like the mother of all sorts of languages it's like one of the best preserved examples of like indo-european language that's sort of like this proto-language at the root of pretty much all of india's and all of europe's languages i love learning mm -hmm. about languages so enlighten me please well vimana is a word that shows up in the vedas and its literal translation means that it is something that has been measured mm-hmm uh, the earliest references to Vimanas are usually descriptions of palaces using the word to sort of speak about how long they are, how big they are. Oh, I see. Okay. So Vimanas, that's where the first words come up is, you know, this palace is so well built. It's so huge. It's so grand. Yeah. It's so, uh, you know, it's the intricacy of the design all means like, you know, it's been measured. It's very, uh, trying to think of like intricate it would probably be like the or intricate or accurate or uh yeah you know, it, it doesn't translate perfectly into english obviously sure, right right i kind of get what you mean it's like it's been very thought out i guess in a way mm -hmm. yeah but then 
through the Vedas, because the Vedas are written over a long period of time, we start seeing references in Sanskrit to Vimana just becoming a term for meaning a king's palace. Okay. And then it would refer to the palaces of the gods. Interesting. Is there a reason mm-hmm. why we're like, were kings seen as like divine, divinely chosen or divine beings? I uh, can't talk to that point, but essentially there's big parts in the Vedas that talk about Hindu gods living in the sky and having palaces. I see. And so they'd refer to, you know, the this god's palace in the sky, that kind of a thing. It's Vamana in the sky. Okay. So then I kind of feel like just taking it from that, you kind of see where people could get the idea that they are literal flying things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it would be almost like if an ancient aliens person was studying, you know, ancient England mm-hmm. or English folktales and said, well, the ancient English scripture says mm-hmm. that at the top of the clouds, if you were to grow a proper beanstalk, lives uh, some sort of large race of giants that had their homes above the clouds. So uh, is this proof that there are aliens? Because this is a reference to houses in the clouds. It must be something, right? I think so. Although maybe with a little bit more uh, sensitivity, because this is actually like extremely important holy literature for a very large and major religion today. Sure, of course. So, So Vimana started to become a reference to the palaces of the gods in the heavens that could fly. Mm. As we look into it, it turns out that the Vimanas of the gods were like huge palaces with terraces and golden staircases. Show offs. Like in some ways, the messaging gets things like, is this a flying fortress or is this a a flying palace? Is this a, you know, comment on how beautiful Mm. its workings are? Those kinds of things. But uh, one of the things that does stick out is that Typically, flying machines don't have like arboreums or gardens or staircases or things like that. This, it, it almost kind of sounds like uh, that Studio Ghibli film, Castle in the Sky, with all these big, this big, beautiful, lush uh, garden sky place. So that's I what would I'm not imagining. be surprised if there was some inspiration, but uh, I can't confirm that. So that's what I'm just going to imagine that because it's a beautiful movie. Yeah. Well, because the palaces of the gods flew, the word then started to become a reference for things that fly. Makes sense. And then in the Vedas, they have stories about, you know, great kings or gods that had like flying chariots and things like that. And so they would also be referred to as Vimanas. That's so interesting how just this word that really just kind of meant like intricate and thoughtful and and like well constructed almost just became very much this uh, more generalized term for palaces and then flying palaces. And it's it's just the the transformation of of language is so fascinating to me. When you're dealing with texts that could be like up to three and a half thousand years old, you can actually see the language change over time. And Sanskrit is a very uh, well-studied language. And so we can see like, just like people who study any language, you can see like how words change definition over time. We can see sort of the pathways that led from one Mm -hmm. definition to another definition. But what if we ignored those pathways and just assumed that it was always talking about flying alien machines. It'd be interesting. It would be interesting. It'd be a fun way to look at that. It'd be interesting. That's all I'm saying. So this is like a sort of philology lesson going through the history of the Sanskrit language. But going into the Vedas in specific, mm-hmm. Vimana became a word for a palace, mm-hmm. then a palace of the god. And yeah, a, usually a flying thing. But in the earlier text of the Vedas, Vimanas aren't even mentioned. Interesting. Yeah, and when they are finally mentioned... It usually includes them having wheels or being drawn by horses, i.e. the whole flying carriage thing. Oh, I see. What they don't reference is a dynamo mercury anti-gravity machine. So how how did people think of that then? Oh, we'll get there. Okay. All um, right. A little teaser. These, yeah. So these, uh, so these chariots were, you know, kind of like uh, the chariot of... Say, uh, you know, I'm trying. I'm I'm blanking right now on like the Greek god of the sun was like Helios. 
Yeah. So the Greek god of the sun uh, has a chariot that's pulled by flying horses, right? Is, is this the term? Is this where the name of the book Chariots of the Gods comes from? Possibly. That actually wouldn't be a surprise to me. I'd have to check that out. But uh, this is definitely one of the topics that gets breached in uh, Chariots of the Gods. Well, there you go. And also another example is being pulled by horses. There's also a Vimana that's pulled by geese. <laughs> So I love that. That's so fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. But not one mention of flywheels or mercury vortex machines. No. Well, what um, are the geese made of? Well, I mean, they could be made of mercury, yeah, I suppose. See? Um, Don't shut down that imagination. Keep it going. It is a liquid. Liquids can go into any shape. That's true. Uh, <laughs> then sometime around writings in about 500 BC, the chariots lose their horses and are just uh, flying chariots that don't get pulled by anybody. Magic chariots. One example would be the King Ravana, mm-hmm. and it was called uh, Pushpaka. So this is around 400 BC. They have flying chariots. Uh, one, it was described as being 12 cubits in circumference, but they still have big wheels that mark them as being a sort of like evolution of the horse-drawn carriage. So... Because some would say that, like, automobiles are, like, you know, the next evolution of horse-drawn carriage. (laughs) But apparently, before even Elon Musk got in here with his cars, I think he invented cars. I can't remember the exact history. But before that, people had flying cars, flying carriages. That's pretty impressive. They wrote about them, for sure. And so these became common things that showed up that powerful, like, legendary kings and powerful gods would have in Hindu uh, like, you know, the general Hindu theology. It's just part of like the legends of of, Hi- of Hinduism. And so there's like a quick through line about mm-hmm. the development of these flying, quote unquote, machines that uh, lose all their intrigue for ancient astronauts. If you like actually look at like how they don't just like appear out of nowhere, like there'd be more to think about if, say, a Vimana flying machine was just introduced as like this novel new thing out of nowhere Mm -hmm. but we can actually see them move from like one depiction to another depiction to another depiction and because we can trace that back the idea that it was just like uh you know alien intervention feels like it's lost a lot of its uh power yeah but how do you explain the blueprints how do you explain the mercury dynamo machines and everything like that how do you well it's because the vedas that ancient aliens uses primarily for this segment where Mm. most of the evidence that they've dug up in isn't part of the Vedas at all. Okay. That feels worth mentioning. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, They threw it in. Yeah. They threw it in with all of the other Vedas and the other Vedas being, you know, very old documents Uh from 1400 to 2000 years old or 2,500 years old. But there are just like with books of the Bible, multiple hoax Vedas that have shown up throughout history. Uh, They're not canon. No. Mm. And the one that we're going to talk about today where a lot of this stuff came from is something called the Vimanika Shastra, Mm. which was dictated. What, according to the story was dictated from the spirit world in the ancient year of 1918, 1918. So that in that feels more recent than I would have expected. Well, there's a bit more to it because we don't actually have any depictions or any evidence that this was even written in 1918 because the story of it being transcribed in 1918 is from the first known publishing of this book in 1952. (laughs) So this just keeps getting worse and worse. It seems it feels like a very recent modern interpretation or not even interpretation, but just like it it feels it feels way more recent in history than than I feel like it should be. Yeah, this would be a Veda that is suspiciously new in that it might have been published as recently as about 16 years before the publishing of Chariot of the Gods. Interesting timing. Funny how that worked out. Uh, Yeah, so this book is supposedly supposed to be the text that comes from an ancient seer by the name of... By the way, I just got to apologize for everybody. I do not know Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't even know Hindi, so this is not like my best pronunciation, but uh, Bharadvada who is a famous like seer, like it's claimed to have been written by a famous seer from the ancient past who does show up in the Vedas. So this is like a spinoff. Yeah. 
But Ancient Aliens refers to this book as just part of the Vedas and then lumps it in with the thousands of year old texts. That feel you can't do that. You can't do that. You got to mention it at least. Yeah. And even while they did that, they also claimed that the Vedas are about 6,000 years older than they actually are. Okay. But it's in this book where we find the Vamanas with the technical operations manual blueprint type drawings. I see. And it's this book that has the Mercury Vortex uh, engine. I need to know more about these Mercury Vortex machines. Yeah, so in this book, uh, the technical drawings show that somehow these things were able to fly using flywheels, which is sort of a way of storing energy for very short periods of time, Mm -hmm. and uh, using it by basically rotating magnets and mercury. Uh, Some of it feels like a perpetual motion machine type thing, Ah. but essentially uh, magnets and mercury happen and somehow lift is generated, which is interesting. Sure. I, I love when science is like, I don't know, somehow this is how it happens. Yeah. The, the biggest mistake that the Vimanika Shastra could have made is that in writing it, they actually put in blueprints because blueprints you can analyze And you can make factual claims about. That's a really good point. Because then you could just look at it and go, well, what if we build this? And and if it works, then awesome. And if it doesn't work, then maybe it's a little little baloney. Mm -hmm. So engineers have taken looks at it over the years. And the general consensus seems to be that it would be um, hilariously. The only way way I can see it described as hilariously impossible that these things would ever be considered uh, flying (laughs) machines. Um, One study in 1974 Uh that had a bunch of like aeronautics engineers look at the blueprints to say what they would say. Uh, We got a a wonderful quote here. Um, As thoroughly as been written, the committee just as thoroughly dismantled the study in an essay called a critical work on the work of the Vinaka Shastra. They questioned whether the author, whoever that may have been, had any grasp of basic physics chemistry, and electricity, not to mention the disciplines of aeronautics, aerodynamics, aeronautical structures, propulsive devices, materials, or even metallurgy. Their conclusion was that, quote, none of the planes has properties or capabilities of being flown. (laughs) The geometries are unimaginably horrendous from the point of view of flying, and the principles of propulsion make them resist rather than assist flying. Uh, the other one I have found here is that they are, quote, absurdly non-aerodynamic. Oh, my God. Brutalist wedding cakes with minarets, huge ornithopter wings, and dinky propellers. Oh, my God. These these quotes are not holding anything back. They're just like, <laughs> these are the most garbage flying machines I've ever ever seen in my life they don't they are more stuck to the ground than than anything else on this earth they they are not even capable of flying so much that they would wrap they could they could dig themselves further into the ground before they fly (laughs) brutalist wedding cakes was a pretty good touch that's a really good one yeah and again this is another case of us seeing the uh, dishonesty, I guess, that you see, like the kind of deceptive filmmaking practices that is found in Ancient Aliens, where 90% of the information comes from this book and is claimed to have come from the Vedas. <sighs> that, that's in, that, that is incredibly misleading. Like that is almost, that almost angers me how, how completely misleading that is. Because it's, it's like you are trying to make something seem legitimate by stretching every loose connection to, to be like, yes, trust me, this definitely works. Just don't look into it further than what I'm telling you. And it's just so flimsy. Yeah. And here's the thing. Here's like the part where uh, I get like, act like this is intentionally dishonest stuff. Cause this happens a lot. And if you are wanting to take away a lesson about how to find out when someone is trying to uh, not so much shoot straight with you and say a documentary, mm-hmm. what they'll do is they'll talk about something uh, as if it was true for a good amount of time. And then at the very end, be like, oh, but actually it doesn't work. Because what they'll do is they'll throw that in at the end, 
But then, you know, a year later, when, you know, you've lost some of the details of it, you'll remember the 10 minutes they dedicated to how cool the flying machines were. And you'll completely forget that they just said at the very end, oh, by the way, none of this was anything worth your time. And that's what and I mentioned this last time, too, in in the the previous episode. But like the, the special that kind of started off Ancient Aliens at least had some voices on there to lend a more credible and I guess like historic viewpoint rather than, you know, talking about aliens and trying to make these theories fit with ancient alien theories. And it just feels like the show moving forward. And again, as of this point, I've only ever seen like one and a half additional episodes, but it seems like they've fully gotten rid of those voices for the most part and are just now focusing solely on the people who are pushing forward these theories of it's definitely aliens. And even though before we had like, you know, we did talk about there's, these are definitely aliens that created these inventions that influenced these cultures. And then we would have someone on who's like, well, maybe it was also this. They've just like cut that part out completely. And they're like, nope, we're only going to focus on the it's definitely aliens part. And it's mm-hmm. kind of it's yeah. And like one of yeah. the new faces that shows up, like when I think about the kinds of people that they're they're pick, picking up, uh, there's one person who was from the Disclosure Project. What is that? It sounds like a very like official grown up organization. Uh, what the Disclosure Project is is an organization that is essentially trying to lobby the United States to disclose all of the stuff that it has about UFOs and aliens. I see. So they're the one, they're sort of a pressure group that's trying to convince the government to uh, declassify all of their UFO uh, stuff, basically. Okay. Interesting. they, they, They tap a lot. Like when they, when I looked at like the people that they dug up for this show to be their on-air experts. Almost all of them are not from archaeology departments or anything like that. They're almost entirely from like ufology circles. You know, I mean, and this is this is something that I feel like we're going to talk about and touch on throughout this whole podcast because I feel like there are two sort of main goals of this show. And I'm glad we're touching on this in in such an early episode, which is, you know, number one, you know, debunking some, some fake history and learning some real history as best we can. And that's very exciting. But I think there's also a big thing to be said for analyzing how this show and how these ancient alien theorists talk about this stuff to try and make it seem convincing and spreading this this information that is almost I mean I don't want to I I'm I I'm not the person who did the research for these for these episodes but they almost seem like they are hilariously easy to discredit and debunk but they make it yeah. seem like it could be true. Yeah, especially with this stuff. Like a lot of this stuff is taken from Chariot of the Gods mm-hmm. and from Eric von Daniken's large body of work. Maybe we'll get into some new stuff when we get in later in the show, but that's definitely where they started. They were yeah. definitely cribbing from. And on top of that, they have to deal with not only the fact that a large amount of Chariot of the Gods has already been debunked. Yeah. Uh, thoroughly. The book has been around for... Uh, over 50 years at this point. And so it's been it's been thoroughly picked apart by people over the years uh, because it was both wrong but insanely popular. So a lot of people picked up on it. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. But so they have to throw all these different things in so that they can have this like li- layer of plausible deniability but also try to walk away from it. Yeah. Another thing that happens in the ancient alien segment is a lot of quote twisting to make things sound more convincing than they are. Yeah, all right. You got an example for me? Yes. So this comes, this is an actual description of the Vimanas. And this is how it's depicted in the show versus how the actual Vedas text uh, describes them. See if you can see where they went. Uh, they differ from each other. Okay. So so here's the here's the part that comes from David Childress. And like the ancient aliens people. I like people. this. It's a fun little game. Yeah. Uh, when morning dawned, Rama, taking the celestial car, Puspaka, had sent to him by Vivpishand, stood ready to depart. Self-propelled was that car. 
It was large and finely painted. It had two stories and many chambers with windows and was draped with flags and banners. It gave forth a melodious sound as it coursed along its airy way. Okay. All right. So that's that's what you saw in Ancient Aliens. Yes. Here's the depiction from uh, Ramayana. And the mighty monkey ascended the splendid car Pushpaka, containing figures of wolves made by Kartaswara and Hiranya, graced with ranges of goodly pillars as if blazing in splendor, throughout garnished with narrow secret rooms and saloons, piercing the heavens and resembling Meru or Mandara, and like unto the flaming sun skillfully reared by Vikwakarma, with golden staircases and graceful and grand raised seats, rows of golden and crystal windows, and dioceses composed of sapphires, emeralds, and other superb gems, embellished with noble vidrumas, costly stones, and round pearls, as also with plastered terraces, pasted with red sandal like unto gold, and furnished with a sacred aroma and resembling the sun new risen. Those are dramatically different from mm-hmm. one another. The first one is is very much like, this is a car, this is a flying car, and it drives off into the sky. And the second one is just like, here's this beautiful, intricate thing that I'm describing, the end. Yeah. Uh, other parts, it also describes the this vehicle or this car or whatever you want to describe it as, as being filled with fruit trees and drawn by geese. I I love the geese idea. It's very fun to me. <laughs> Maybe geese know more than they're letting on. Maybe the geese... Ge- Do you think geese are aliens? Let's really think about this for a second. I mean, they're me- they're bad-tempered. Um, they mess around with They stuff. tend to like university campuses. That is true. Aliens do love that as well. That's a thing we know about aliens. Well, they're checking on the scientists they to make sure are. they're not onto them. That's right. They're like throwing them down. Whenever scientists get too close to uncovering the truth, a little, a little goose will come in and I'll just start messing with stuff. Start I'll, hissing. I'll be like, oh, come on, goose. What are you doing? We've seen in Untitled Goose Game that geese can cause a lot of trouble when they need to. They sure can. Not even when they need to. Sometimes just because they want to. And that if that doesn't sound like, you know, aliens just visiting and meddling with stuff, I don't know what else is. I think we've yeah. confirmed geese are aliens. I used to go to uh, the University of Western Ontario, which is a school that gets a lot of geese on campus in the fall. And has a infamous, it became famous on Reddit for a day because on the concrete beach, which is sort of like this area around the student union building, there's a bunch of these planters for trees. Mm -hmm. And what happened, I remember this very well. What happens is that it appears that a pair of geese have decided that one of the planters is the place where they now lay their egg or lay their eggs and Mm -hmm. they take, they have their nest every year. Mm hmm. And if you know anything about how geese are when you get close to their nest is they are very, very hostile animals. Yeah, they don't want you there. So they set themselves up in a extremely high foot traffic area of the campus mm-hmm. where people hang out and eat lunch and stuff. And I remember just getting an email that was just like re re forward forward in all caps goose on campus. <laughs> and it's like about trying to keep it a long, uh, a long berth. And uh-huh. they eventually like had to like rope off the area around the nest. And there's this like actual picture that went viral for like maybe a few days on Reddit. Mm-hmm. That is an unfortunate undergrad being accosted by one of the, by the <laughs> one of these geese. Goose on the loose. Goose on the loose. They're on to us. Yeah. I want to, I want to get back to, to, to those quotes just for, just for a, a brief second. So the, the first one well, it like was very, very specific about like, here is a, here's a celestial car and it drives off into the sky. And then the second one just calls it a car and then just sort of describes what it looks like. So explain to me again, like, was this, is the first one like a, an interpretation of the second one or, or they just come from two different things or like, how are, how are they related? It's supposedly supposed to be translations of the same text. Just one is a very, very pared down and very like a lot of text taken out 
to make it look more like it's describing a vehicle. Yeah. So it is very like dishonest quote twisting. That it's it's like twisting it so much, so much that it's like unrecognizable from one to the next. Mm-hmm. That's so frustrating. Yeah, it's a very uh this is a part where like I actually could say I get angry at uh yeah. the creators of this documentary because like both of us try to be educators both of us work on like i make step back you make nerd sync yeah and both of it is about trying to teach about the world and both of us go to extreme lengths to make sure that the things that we say are you know accurate and uh well sourced and things like that and then to have something with a huge platform like history channel Mm -hmm. putting stuff like this up here which is not only like Like, I would almost be less angry if it was just, like, lazy and sloppy. Yeah. But this is, like intentional twisting like there's a different level of of what you would expect right history channel i feel like has a name where you kind of expect it to be as accurate and you know thorough as possible but it's and it's so disappointing if this just happened if this just popped up on a, a random youtube channel of some person just being like here's something interesting then at the very least you could be like, well, that's still wrong. And they're still twisting all the words, but it's just one person versus like, this is history channel, a a place where I feel like I should have some respect for, for, you know, or at least faith in, in them for wanting to, to make things as accurate as, as possible with a name like history channel. Yeah. I mean, this is what happened with uh, where capitalism meets, educational content yeah. i mean tlc used to be called the learning channel that's and it true. used to be funded by the national science foundation that's true and that's um, <laughs> it's just all so frustrating because the thing that brings in the most money is the stuff that gets the most attention so if you start talking about you know ancient aliens it's ob- i mean i'll be honest the idea of ancient aliens is a very fascinating it hooks you in it's a subject matter that really makes you go huh What's that about? To the point where we're doing a podcast about it. but And so I can see where they went along that path. It's just so frustrating <laughs> that they wouldn't even check some some simple things like this. Like if, if the arguments were a little bit more convincing, then I wouldn't be nearly as angry or frustrated. But yeah. Or just when I think about how much money went into developing the series and, you know, advertising it and like all the money that goes into making something like this. It's just like, wow, that was a lot of money to miseducate people. I mean, I don't know about you because you were talking about how we do educational content. You certainly more than me. But even still, I have done videos on YouTube in the past where I've gotten information wrong and I've taken down the video and edited it so that I had right information and then re-uploaded it because as soon as people came, you know, brought to my attention that something that I said was wrong, I at least had this idea of, oh, yeah, that's I don't want this out there if it's going to be, you know, saying some wrong information. So, yeah, I got to get got to correct it real quick. And the fact that I have more integrity than history channel is very oh funny that's the real takeaway scott nice wonder is better than history channel that's what this podcast is about that's the new title um <laughs> there's another thing too about this story specifically and it is an example of why these kinds of things being done in like large western media can be uh, dangerous yeah so first of all I will have to say, like, this is a good way to preface this thing we need to discuss, which is that we really need to do the process of decolonizing the way that we approach ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Western white supremacist uh, assumptions built into the way that we do archaeology and think about different countries. It's sort of the same thing we talked about in our previous episode where if where we had this idea that the people of the Americas before Europeans arrived were, you know, that the indigenous American people were primitive. And it was mostly not because they did not have the same level of technological development, but because they had grown in a completely different uh, area. They had developed 
in very different ways and ways that we might not have recognized. Europeans back then were judging based on how similar they were to themselves being like, well, we have this technology and we do things this way. And if they don't do it that way, then that just, that must mean that they aren't as advanced as we are, but they're just doing things in a different, also advanced way. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important when talking about the developments by ancient Indian people, and this time I'm talking about people in India, that People on the Indian subcontinent have made huge contributions to our understanding of the world. Things like the number zero and all of the philosophical work done by Hindu philosophers and mathematicians. Absolutely. Uh, India is the birthplace of surgery and some of the most advanced medicines come out of ancient Indian uh, medicinal practices, which were then studied and copied by people in the Middle East throughout the Islamic empire and eventually made its way to Europe, like in the Renaissance and such. Yeah. So there's no like question that there is some significant amounts of things that India has contributed to the world when it comes to technology and science. And uh, when it comes to the complicated history of the fact that India was colonized by Britain and Portugal mm. and has, you know, a very long, um, tenuous history with uh, different groups of invaders and things over the years that in order to rebuild a sort of sense of anti-colonial nationalism, to build a sense of Indianness, which really didn't exist before uh, Britain called conquered it because uh it was a bunch of different countries right it'd be like making a european nationalism or something like that right so sometimes in cases of nationalism when trying to build a national identity the past is one of the places people dig and pseudo history and pseudo archaeology often becomes one of the things that's used to promote the greatness of one's nation like a lot of the cases of famous archaeological hoaxes and things like that is meant to try and build some sort of national identity. Mm. Uh, one example is there was a really famous hoax in Japan of them trying to essentially find an older relic of ancient Japanese history in order to build a narrative that Japan developed a whole bunch of cultural stuff independently and didn't get stuff from China mm. or that they influenced China, not the other way around that kind of thing. Right. And there has been a systematic like you know disregard for the contributions made by indian people but there's been a bit of an overcorrection in trying to latch on to things like this uh narrative around vimanas and flying machines and uh mercury vortexes and stuff like that and using it as a way to advance a narrative about an india and specifically when talking about the vedas is trying to also make the claim that essentially trying to build a uh, Hindu supremacist idea of India when mm. India is a country with many, many, many religions. And uh, there is a movement going on in India that has to deal with Hindu supremacists and Hindu nationalism, mm. including the current prime minister of India who has stated that he believes in these flying machines. Oh no. Yeah. Nahindra Modi, the, um, the prime minister of India who is part of the BJP, which is a far right, uh, Hindu nationalist party is uh, a believer in this. And part of building a Hindu nationalism has a lot to do with otherizing and, uh, oppressing India's large Muslim population. And so a lot of like Hindu nationalism is uh, tied in with Islamophobia in India. Well, that's no good. Don't like that. Yeah, this took a real, real turn. Yeah, huh? don't like that at all. Remember when we were talking about geese? That was fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Hindu nationalists right now in India are, are actively drumming up hatred and violence towards other religious groups in India, especially Muslims, who Hindu nationalists scapegoat as the reason for a, a national decline from like, you know, the far, far past that mm. weakened India and made them so weak that they couldn't resist colonization. And like here, India's got a big problem with things like fake news <sighs> and conspiracy thought, theories. I thought we were done with fake news. Uh. Nope. And they have a, you know, they have television news programs that spread right-wing conspiracy theories and 
all these kinds of things. It's a whole ecosystem. And this, while not a large part, mm-hmm. is being used to contribute to this story that, you know, Hindus are somehow had this highly, highly advanced society like to science fiction levels of advanced society. And that if it wasn't for the Muslims who invaded, we would be, uh, we would have been able to repel the colonizers and India would be this thing to this, you know, uh, global superpower today. And it's like, uh, it's not real. It's used to try to demonize Muslims. And at the same time, I think that by doing this, you're then again, glossing over the actual amazing developments by the Indian people and the amazing things that India has done since it became independent to become the, you know, mighty country it is today. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, is this belief in, in this grand technically advanced, like way more technically advanced past than, than our current present is that a new belief that, they, that they've latched onto? Like, it feels like it would be, considering you had said that the text for the Vimanas only was written about in, like, the 50s. Uh, yeah, in Hindu nationalism, in many ways, like, it has sort of embers in the resistance to uh, British colonization as a lot yeah. of, you know, anti-colonial nationalism movements come. Mm-hmm. But then when India got independence... Uh, it also became associated with like their their kind of ongoing tight relations with Pakistan, which is a primarily Muslim country. Right. And so uh, Hindus living in Pakistan and Muslims living in India have had uh, there's been a, like, you know, there's been wars and things like sure. that. And right now they're sort of in a precarious position because both Pakistan and India are nuclear armed countries that are both very preoccupied with trying to prepare themselves for what they think is an inevitable war between the two of them, at least uh, when you talk to nationalists. Right. I don't know. It feels like I'm trying to uh, digress because I don't really know how prevalent this is within uh, Hindu nationalism. I don't even know how much of this narrative uh, is with Modi, but but Modi at least has expressed that he believes in the flying machines, which has some worrisome stuff. And by making it, by validating it with something like putting on the History Channel, you are in a small way, admittedly, feeding into it. And if there's one thing that I think all of us can begrudgingly admit to, which is that if something is wrong, but it uh, fits a thing that we really want to believe in, we're very willing to put our uh, faculties, our critical faculties aside in order to buy into it. And I think that that's a thing that happens in a lot of different cases that and that's that's what i was trying to get at it was exactly what you hit on even though when you as you've expertly done in this another riveting episode of this podcast have really picked apart all of the details and intricacies of this theory of of this idea and shown just how flimsy a lot of the evidence really is you it's so much easier to look beyond that and look look the other way and say well i don't know i believe it because it's it supports the thing that i already believe in and that is good for me personally on a personal level so yeah i I think that is not a great mentality so it does mean that when you are watching something or reading about something where you are very invested in it being true, or if it is saying things that is validating a worldview you have, that's almost when you need to be more critical. Yes. Like you're going to have more of your on guard thing when you are uh, watching something that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. But when you're watching somebody you do agree with, that's the time. It's almost like uh, one of the things you learn when you become a researcher regularly is that the things that you need to look up are the things that you feel like you know the answer to already. Oh my gosh. That's the time when you most likely need to be looking it up. Can I give you a not at all <laughs> like serious example of this exact thing? Yeah. Just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit because we, we've hit on a lot of serious and important topics for sure. But just to kind of round it out as a, as a perfect example of this. So I was doing a video on my YouTube channel, NerdSync, many, many years ago, and I was talking about the old Batman serials, um, the old black and white serials of Batman. And I referred to them as Batman TV serials because 
in my head, like someone had told me about them and they said that they were on TV. And so I always just, I never even bothered double checking that. I was like, yeah, this is like a TV show of Batman. And I just didn't even bother fact checking it for my video in the thirties, you know, before homes had televisions in it. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even, that never crossed my mind until I got a lot of comments about it. And I had issued, um, as, as I said, I, I had this series in the past where I would go over people's comments and talk about all the stuff that I got wrong. And that was definitely one of them. I was like, whoops. I think that actually sparked me doing that. It sparked the idea of me, issuing corrections on videos because i was like wow this is such a big giant thing that i got wrong because i just instinctively thought i was right and i never even bothered to check and i think that feeds into that's just a very silly example of of what you were um what you're talking about yeah. being a little they bit more critical down to the movie theater to see them right yeah they are they were movies they were movie serials you had to go and watch them as they came out they were not on tv because tvs were not commercially available at the time so there you go uh so i think that we i think that if this one we've learned a lot about i mean we learned we had a little bit of fun talking about the weird places that ancient aliens went to make this vimana story but also a lot about how to deceive people through documentary and about things that you can do to critically assess the world to don't be ancient aliens, you know, don't be ancient aliens unless you're talking, unless you're talking about geese, geese are aliens, Mm -hmm. geese are aliens. Let's see how long we can ride this out. Geese truth. Yeah. (laughs) Geese truth. (laughs) Goose truth. Let's go. No, thank you so much for enlightening me and all of the listeners on this very, uh, very fascinating subject of we talked, we talked about language evolving. We talked about real world politics. We talked about how documentaries will twist things to make them seem more true. And it seems like twist is not even the correct word. It's like a a violent molding of, of everything to, to really. Oh yeah. This one's a real pretzel. Yeah, very much. So I'm losing my words because I'm just frustrated by this whole, this whole thing, but I'm glad that, that we talked about it and I'm glad that I've learned so much. So thank you, Tristan. My pleasure. So uh, you should subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Spotify or wherever great podcasts are sold. Yes. Uh, check out Step Back and Nerd Sync. Follow us on Twitter at uh, Probs Not History. Nope. Or Probs Not Aliens. Yes. And uh, we're a new podcast. If you want to rate and review on, on all those uh, podcast places. Yeah, that leave would us be, your four star reviews. Leave us your, your most four star review. We want to be the most four star podcast on iTunes. Thank you very much. Would appreciate it did we have a tagline i feel like we used one last time but maybe we didn't maybe we're just the truth is out there no no i can't do that one somebody already did that one (laughs) (laughs) well all right until next time my name is scott nicewander and i'm tristan johnson the truth is out there it's on google i guess somewhere somewhere also geese are aliens bye-bye